We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. I want to give a big shout out to Chris Musgrove for stepping in last week in my absence. I had an amazing time in Glacier National Park, in Yellowstone, did some fly fishing, did some hiking. I feel rejuvenated and refreshed. Alan, I took in the Kentucky beatdown. I watched the Colorado State game. I'm caught up. I'm here. I'm ready to dish some hot takes before I get to that. I want to say, if you love the content on this episode, if you want Chris Musgrove to be the host instead of me, (laughs) leave us some feedback on Facebook, write us on... Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On Patreon, uh, become a patron. I want to thank some new patrons. We got some last week. I want to thank Peter uh, Gilarte or Gilliart or several other ways I could say that. I'm not sure. Feel free to write me the phonetic spelling. For a small dono, Craig Anderson comes in with a large dono. Oh. Appreciate that. And then Wade Bayless with yeah, a small dono as well. Also, shout out to Brian Levine, who got some love last week. I was not here to give him love, so I'm going to give him some more. Brian Levine's been a guy that I've gotten to know through the American Flag Football League. Uh, great Gator. Great guy. Thanks for the support, Brian. And then our top supporter, still. The man, the myth. The man, the myth, the legend, Alexander Leventhal. Uh, he is killing it. We appreciate your support, guys. If you want to support us, hop on to Patreon. Uh, you can become a patron of the show. You can send us a dono, which, of course, Alan and I love. We'll send you a nice message, give you some love on the pod. And with that, let's start talking about 
this game. Alan, both you and Grover picked the Gators to win, but not to cover the spread. There was a lot of uneasiness in your prediction as I listened to the pod. Did this win feel like the blowout that the 48-10 score indicated, or was it closer than that? I think it was a little closer. Now, I don't want to downplay special teams because special teams counts. And if you're getting points on special teams and your offensive numbers don't look as good, that's fine because you're freaking racking up points on the scoreboard. But that first quarter, it looked like they played us kind of evenly. I was not feeling confident until we started to really move the ball, really shut them down, put some points on the board, open up that gap. But in the end, I'll take that winning by the spread, covering it. It is a blowout, but it didn't feel like your traditional we just dropped the hammer on them kind of blowout because I think Colorado State's a little bit better than that. What about you? Yeah, Frank starts the game one for eight. I did not get to watch it live. I was in Yellowstone taking in other things following the game when we had service, and you know, you kind of it looked like a blowout via cell phone because the score got to be large. And then I dive into the stats and think, wait a minute, this is kind of weird. Uh, We're scoring in other ways, and like you mentioned, those things count. But upon watching the film, which we're going to really get into, this game is not a blowout to me. And and I think that Dan Mullen even said this in the post game presser that essentially. There's still a lot of issues this team has. And the score made it look like, oh man, maybe we really fixed what happened against Kentucky. Uh, but I think that this this game has a lot of interesting things to break down, which is good for us since we're going to spend this time walking it you know, through with you on this podcast. Uh, as for the Gators, I'm, I'm not going to run and press the I'm super excited we just crushed Colorado State button here. It feels like somewhere in between. It was good. It was, it was excellent. You know, 19 point spread. We, we almost doubled that. Nothing wrong with that, but also not something to say, wow, we were a juggernaut in that game. Yeah. So if you look at our total yardage, like fairly low, especially for a score this size, does that bother you? Absolutely. I mean, Frank's finished with, I think, 116 passing yards in that game. Uh, There were open receivers all day long. We weren't hitting them. Uh, We had a hard time running the ball for long stretches of the game. And, Alan, most importantly, Colorado State was one of the worst defenses in Division I football coming into this game. And we did not have our way with them at home uh, on a day that was extremely hot. So it's hard to feel good about the total yardage line where it is. Mike Bianchi wrote an article this weekend that was basically doing what he typically does, trash Gator fans, uh, and how, oh, Florida, you should be thankful you're not Florida State. You should stop picking on Franks and you should be so pleased. And who cares about the yardage? That that to me is just a, a, a very uninformed football opinion. These things do matter. They come back to bite you later. We talked a lot, Alan, about style and substance and how you win. And that is indicative of the fact that our offense is still, in fact, broken. It has not been fixed. Uh, and, and I think that does matter for the future. One thing I was encouraged about is that we didn't seem like we had a hangover from the previous week. I heard some people use the phrase, we didn't let Kentucky beat us twice. That was a pretty rough game on in every aspect. To lose at home, to lose for the first time in 31 years. I could have seen them come out and be flat. And this is a, a Colorado State team that was probably riding high coming off that big win against Arkansas where they came back in the second half. So the fact that we didn't show any kind of malaise from that game, you know, maybe showed a little more grit was encouraging to me. I think the co- that goes to the coaching staff to get them back on track to play a game where they probably weren't 
you know, looking at Colorado State at the beginning of the year and said, we need to really play well in this game, but we did need to play well in this game. What was your impressions of that? Yeah, I think that's the most important takeaway from this game for me, is we had a traumatizing loss, if you will, uh, blowing a streak against a Kentucky team that you have always beaten. Many Gator fans have never seen us lose to them. And the energy of the football team on Saturday looked as though we had beaten Kentucky the week before. That is no small measure of excellent coaching by the staff. Uh, You're on a campus where most of the students, I think it's safe to say, are indifferent to what's going on with the football team. You have the national media that's basically signaling the demise of the Gators. Um, How much lower can it get? And they came out and played with a lot of energy. I think that's a huge takeaway. Although I couldn't be a part of the pod, if I could have said anything last week, what I would have said is, hey, I picked this team to win seven games. Yes, I'm not excited about several things that are being done. But I know that this is not a Jim McElwain or Will Muschamp situation. This team will get better as the year goes on. It's not going to be demonstrably better because we have issues that you can't just wave a wand and fix. But I do expect Dan Mullen to do what he just showed us he can do, which is get this team ready after a difficult and emotional loss at home to play again on Saturday. And that's no small feat. And I think it's great that you isolate that here because that is something that can easily get lost in beating an inferior opponent. But that was a, a excellent job by the staff to get these guys playing with energy and with juice on Saturday. So let's take a look now, Alan, at the analysis of the game. We do this, of course, every week. If you're new to the show, we're going to spend some time going through the offense, the defense, the special teams, what we saw on film, what we saw in person, and try to put together good, bad, or indifferent. The question that strikes me the most from this game is what's holding back the offense? It doesn't seem to be clicking. It doesn't seem to be where it needs to be. Of course, it's Dan Mullen's first year. You expect this to have time. But if you had to if you had to say what's holding it back, if you had to give me some answers here, what do you think it is? Well, we're going to get to the quarterback in a second. And so obviously that's an issue. But I still have to go back to the offensive line. They weren't dominating a very light Colorado State front who doesn't put a lot of pressure on you, who doesn't dictate what you have to do. We should have been able to run the ball with ease if we had the kind of offensive line talent and coordination that we're looking for. I don't know if Brett Heggie is going to come in and save the day, but this group of five has shown me that they're not going to get to a level where I want them to. Um, Fred Johnson continued to disappoint. Martez Ivey looks lost at times. Tyler Jordan got beat on a bunch of plays. Buchanan is serviceable at best. Juwan Taylor continues to be fine, good, even in spots, but he's not a world beater um, like we thought he might be his freshman year. And then I think where we're at with the coaching staff, there's a lot of plays that they want to call, but I don't think they can call them because I don't think the guys are ready to run them. So that's a big limitation, uh, whether that's QB runs, whether that's different run designs. Demlon has a lot of complex run designs that he can unleash, but I don't think either the offensive front or the team in general is ready to run them. So I would say that that is the reason the offense still looks like it's clinking along, you know, other than quarterback play. Yeah, the obvious smoking guns here are, are are Franks and the offensive line. But I think there's something that's most important. And Alan, you and I said this all the way back in January. You asked me if Emory Jones wasn't the starter on day one, are we in trouble? And I said yes, because that would mean that we have a patchwork person running this offense. And primarily the major problem 
with the offense right now is that Felipe Franks is incapable of being a consistent runner of the football. And if you look at the Colorado State game and the Kentucky game, what you're going to see is very often we have a positive number advantage in the box, which last year that almost never happened, right? And this year we're actually getting it a lot, which indicates that the play design is good. So we'll have seven or eight guys, including Franks, versus the defense's six guys at the base look. In an Urban Meyer-Dent Mullen offense, that is always going to be a run every single time. In the Kentucky game, you saw large stretches where we just abandoned the run entirely. That is against the core philosophy of the offense. And Alan, you're touching on some of the reasons why. In the Kentucky game, there's no trust for the offensive line to hold their blocks. So you're basically saying, well, I've got to try something different because this is just not working. In the Colorado State game, we were much more consistent with doing what the numbers dictated we should do, but we struggled. And that's a combination of both. Colorado State does not respect Franks' running, and they also know he's not going to run it 14 or 15 times a game. Therefore, uh, most of the time they're bringing a safety down to assist in the run game, and they are not really even acknowledging Franks beating them with their feet. So it keys in the running backs. It allows them to play much more aggressive, uh, and it's causing a lot of problems with the offense. You could have imagined having even just a straight running quarterback against a team like Colorado State, and he would have had a field day with the looks they were giving us. So quarterback play, O-line play. We said, Alan, the most important unit on this team was the O-line because we expected the quarterback play to be subpar. We expected the O-line to have to carry the offense, and they are not doing it. They are not doing it. That's really affecting how well this unit is performing. And you saw us get on track a little bit in the second quarter is because we started running more effectively. Uh, both Pirine, Scarlett looked like they were timing out the runs a little better. The offensive line was getting to the second level. And what I mean by that, they're blocking their initial guy and then they're moving up and blocking another guy in some situations. The tight ends were blocking well. Now what was happening previously, sometimes the offensive line was missing their first block and trying to get to the second level. And that was creating a lot of negative plays for us. I It feels weird when I'm yelling at the screen, run the ball, because we've got to figure that out. We can't turn, even if the looks they're giving us say, throw the ball, and they're not really, we can't just go, we're going to throw it every time. Felipe's not capable of leading us to victory like that. And so I was encouraged that we were able to at least figure that out and make some positive steps, even if it was against a team like Colorado State. Okay, we've seen three weeks of Felipe Franks in this office, offense, James. What's your assessment of him overall? After three weeks, you didn't get to comment last week. So give me the big picture on him right now. I think at this point in time, looking at the film, Franks is right where I thought that he would be. He's still not a good quarterback. Uh, his reading ability is very limited. You saw that on perfect display in this Colorado State game. He was late on a variety of throws where guys are wide open. So you have good play design. You have good execution until he makes his read and throws the ball. And Mullen's been talking about this continuously, right? And right. it's actually really nice, Alan, to have Dan Mullen on a press conference be able to articulate these thoughts. We don't have to fill in the blanks for him. We know he also sees it. Uh, and, and his running ability is really hampering the team. I know that Dan Mullen can say until he's blue in the face that all he needs is a quarterback that will run it a couple of times a willing runner. to display a threat, right? That is just not true. And I'm going to continue to say it on this podcast. Dan Mullen's offense relies upon the run game to be the more dominant unit. 
and the quarterback is the major factor for that. Again, I don't love that style, but I can analyze it strategically and say that has to be done. He's aware that we're not doing that now. If you look at Franks as just a pocket passer, he's still just very juvenile. He's very high schoolish. What goes on? If his first read is there and he's confident in it, he can make a lot of nice throws. If it's not perfect, that's when things really break down. And there's a whole host of throws I could walk you through where you see this happening. Uh, if he has to go to his second read, generally things get a little difficult. The biggest improvement in his game, in my opinion, is that he does keep his eyes downfield, which we did not see that all last year. And his ball fakes are a million times better. Yes. The ball fakes are actually very good. He still, he still struggles with his own read. There's times he should keep it. Uh, we, we don't always know if it's going to be a dedicated handoff or not, but a true zone read play in Mullen's offense is supposed to be an actual read. Uh, but I think that the ball fakes are much, much, much improved. And, and that's not a simple thing. Some quarterbacks are good at it, some aren't. But overall, he's kind of right where we thought he would be. He's still a massive project. He hasn't shown me anything to think that he can get over the hump. Uh, he continues to look like a guy to me, Alan, who's going to be a patchwork guy until either Emory Jones figures it out or a true freshman coming in next year is able to beat them out. It's just hard to envision him taking these large steps to get to a competent level of play in this system. It feels like that requires a lot of hope when most guys that have reached his stage of the college career, they just don't tend to get to that next level. So I suppose that's what I've thought about him, and I haven't seen anything to think that that's not the case. I guess one upside scenario or narrative would be that he's only got three games in this system. Now he might've played a lot last year, but I don't think he had very good coaching from either Nussmeyer or McIlwain, despite McIlwain's protestations that he could get his dog to play quarterback. So if you're hoping that Felipe will get better by the end of the year, I think the number one way you would want him to improve is that he's going through those progressions quickly. Dan Mullen talked about in the press conference, like, you know, if you've got your first read and something goes bad, it's almost like you don't even to you should be able to anticipate what's going on the other side, like because you know what look that they're giving. And Felipe seems way far away from that. Whether that's he's just not equipped to do it, you know, football mentality wise, or he just needs a ton more reps. Either way, he's not there yet. I guess there's a small sliver of hope he can get at least a little bit more proficient at it by the end of the year. But they're in trouble until he starts to figure that out. Okay, let me ask this maybe in terms of his, your grading of his performance. What was like his best ball and worst ball? I mean, best throw he made, worst throw he made, that would indicate maybe some of the positive and the negative. Anytime he throws over the middle and and succeeds is is a good thing for a college quarterback. And there was the post route where he hit Freddie Swain on a good pass, well-timed, that indicates the good. That was nice. That was not his first read. It was a second read. It was a high-low read. Quality execution, very, very good ball. Hit him right where he needed to. Lots of velocity. Uh, that's a, that's the best of Franks. Uh, the worst of Franks is on display a lot in this game. The opening play uh, stands out in particular. On the left side, he's got two receivers. There's a go from Cleveland and basically just an angle little out route from the tight end, Siante Lewis. Lewis is virtually unguarded the entire time. Uh, that's, that read is a very simple watch your go. If the corner and safety bail with him, you just you just take the angle out. You take the five yards all day long, every single day. 
And he just comes off of it immediately, it, which makes me wonder, what is he even looking at? I don't know. Then he rolls out to the right and runs for two yards. That's a complete failure in the read system in the offense. And then the worst one, the most egregious one, was 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 one that really should have been simple. Josh Hammond runs a, a quick a quick post or a quick seam right over the middle. He is wide open right after the play fake. Uh, Franks takes quite a while to recognize him and then makes the wrong throw. He, he makes the throw that you would make if he's wide open and there's no help, uh, when in reality, he should have actually thrown that ball deeper, and he still could have beaten the help side defender who was rotating over. So it just shows that when he doesn't see it, he really doesn't see it. And that's the most unfortunate thing, I think, with Franks, is he's doing this, Allen, against inferior competition. There are better teams to come. Uh, and, and yes, you mentioned it. He has three games with Dan Mullen. He's got a fall practice and a spring practice, and he is better than he was last year. But quarterbacking is an extremely hard trade, extremely hard. I heard Trent Dilfer say on the radio today when talking about Patrick Mahomes, the NFL quarterback, having a great debut, about how hard it is for the modern college quarterback to come to the NFL that played in most of these systems because they're not asking these kids to really do anything. And we've said all along, Dan Mullen is not asking Franks to do a lot. That's part of why the offense is so limited, Alan, like you mentioned. There are a lot of plays in the playbook that we are not running because we are not capable of running them. And and that's going to continue to affect us. I think Mullen really just wants to get Franks to the point to where he doesn't make mistakes, where he sees that he's late throwing the ball to Hammond and he just doesn't throw it or he overthrows it. I think he knows it's going to be a monumental task to get him, as he described in his presser, to look to the right, make a quick read, and in 1.2 or 3 seconds go through the whole progression tree. I think he knows that's almost a pipe dream at this point in time. Very few college quarterbacks ever get there, and Mullen also acknowledged that. So the good news is, if you're trying to think about Franks, this is the first time on this podcast I'll get to say this, Dan Mullen knows what he's doing with quarterbacks. We did not see that with Muschamp or McIlwain. It'd be at this point, I'd be saying, what's going on? What are we doing? How are we them? I think he knows that Franks is probably still maybe slightly the best guy for a variety of reasons. But like we said all along, Alan, none of these guys right now are the best guys. Now, a big question I want to talk about, maybe just tee up for future conversations is, at what point in time do you, Alan, think it's worth abandoning Franks and putting in an Emory Jones to get him a season of reps? That's a big philosophical question. But is that on your mind yet? That's what I want to ask right now. Are you even thinking about something like that at this point? Or what does it take to get you into that mindset? I was last week. If we're going to play that bad against Kentucky, let's do something else. Now, again, I said I'm going to remember that game as a defensive failure. And I didn't think it was primarily Franks that lost us the game. But if the season's in the toilet, for whatever reason, play the kid. Unless you think you're going to get him hurt, like DeAndre Francois style, you know. I guess if the season's in the toilet or Franks just regresses because of he's not able to like process the information then. But Emory Jones also looked in his only snaps. We don't see him in practice. He looked so far away that he can't maybe not be ready to even get the team on the field know the play calls, execute the simple things. I think it's surprising we haven't seen him in situational football, like in the red zone or in a third and short. That tells me he's not close. You know, you think Tim Tebow was freshman year, they brought him out there, all right, Tim, you're running QB power, and Tim could do it. You know, and Tim's obviously one of the greatest college football players of all time. But Emory is not even at that point for a freshman, not like 
He's not starting. He's not anything. So it's probably a long way. I think Felipe, you saw the good part of Felipe at the end of the or his time on the field when he throws the touchdown to Van Jefferson. Calm in the pocket, good platform, makes a beautiful throw, hits him right in stride. Now, a lot of that is Van Jefferson was wide open. He still had to make the throw. Now, that was his read on the play, and he executed it. And, like, you can't defend that if Van Jefferson is going to do that and Felipe is going to do that. But on the Hammond throw, the more I watched it, I don't know what else he's looking at. Because that's a beautiful play, and that's got to be your primary read coming over the middle of the field there. And if he throws it immediately, yeah, you can do one of two things. You can throw it, and you hit him right in between the safeties in the corner, or hold it a little longer and throw it toward the back of the end zone. He's going to get him there, too. He did either of those things, and it was a really bad throw, and it, (laughs) it hurt watching it happen. But I will say this. We're not surrounding him with the best personnel in all situations right now. Uh, tight end, we threw a back shoulder throw to Siante Lewis, like split out wide. I don't know why we're doing that. And I really like Jordan Scarlett, but he needs to be off the field on third downs if he's not going to pull in some of these passes. That those are too, those plays are too important to leave to those guys. Now maybe Siante Lewis is still our best tight end receiving. That needs to change. And give Michael Pirine a look on third down. Pierce, if he can get ready, whatever. Uh, but we need to also help Franks out personnel-wise as well. Let me, let me pull the curtain back. You, you went back to the Hammond throw. And as a final thought on this, let me walk you through exactly what had happened up until that point in time. I mentioned earlier that, that defenses are staying in the cover two. So there's two eye safeties. They're staying in their base nickel defense against us. And they're occasionally bringing a safety down to be the extra man in the box to make a tackle which is very risky. It leaves yourself open to the post routes, especially over the middle of the field. When Dan Mullen calls that play to Josh Hammond, that's a play where on the headset you're basically saying, this is going to be a touchdown. We've seen this safety come down. We've watched them drop back into that kind of roll cover two look where the corner is going to start a yard off the line of scrimmage, sprint all the way back and try to cover this massive window. What he absolutely cannot cover is that is that seam post route. So Franks knows that's where to go with the ball. And that's like what you mentioned. It's all the more confusing. That was not like a surprise. That's basically in the headset. This is the guy. The play action is simply to make that safety eat it. It's not like an actual read. You're just doing that so you can look at the safety and say, hey, look, that safety just ate that like a cookie. I'm throwing this ball right to Hammond. And that's concerning. That's concerning, I think, for all of us Gator fans is to see like what's going to happen. And we said, Alan, after the Charleston Southern game, Hey, was this like the new Felipe should be excited? And, you know, I, I essentially said no, because if it's not his first read, it's not great. And sometimes even when it is his first read, it's not great. But as you said, and this is the summation, this is a flawed football team right now. We need other players that are actually SEC level good right now to pick them up. Jordan Scarlett was supposed to be a guy like that. Some of our O-line is supposed to be like that. I will say outside the tight ends, Alan, I think the receivers have have done that. Yes, yes. I think they've done that. If Franks puts the ball anywhere near them, they've done it. So we need the rest of the offense to elevate their game because it's very clear that Franks is just not going to be a guy that's going to put the offense on his back and take them places. He needs all the help that he can get. Speaking of help, there's a guy who seems to continually pop each and every single week. How do you feel about Pierce earning more playing time? It was mentioned on the presser today. 
He's getting a lot of buzz. He's a guy that with the balls in his hands, he's absolutely fantastic. He looks like dynamite out there. Should he be getting more carries? Yes, absolutely. Assuming that he can do the stuff that allows a running back to get on the field, like <laughs> that he knows more than one play, and you know he's not an absolute atrocious in pass protection or leaking out of the backfield. Because if you're going to put on the field more and the defense knows you always run counter left every time he's in the game, it's not going to work. So it's assuming he can do that kind of stuff. He's electric. The speed and power that he's running with right now and also the patience and vision for a young guy is really, really encouraging. I want to see him have more touches. Really sad that Malik Davis uh, broke his foot. He'll be out for a while. And also we didn't maybe talk about Darius Lemons at some point. We didn't talk about him last week leaving the program. That might clarify the backfield a little bit. That you've got these three guys. you got Scarlett, P. Ryan, and Pierce. And Pierce should absolutely get more carries. As much as they can get him on the field, they should. He looks like the most dynamic guy. I don't think he's probably capable of being the workhorse guy at this point. He's a true freshman. I'm sure he doesn't know enough. But as much as the coaches can get him, he should get all of those Malik Davis carries if he's ready for it. And if you're wondering why isn't Pierce automatically going to get those, you know, Mullen, again, it's nice to have an articulate, competent coach laid out all the things running backs have to do. If you've been a longtime listener of this show, you are familiar with these concepts as the running back has to be able to pass protect, has to be able to run the proper routes, has to be able to understand in pass protection the shifts, the calls, the audibles. That's not simple for a freshman. If you're in high school, you basically just get the ball handed to you and you run. There is not a whole lot of any of that kind of stuff going on. And it's much more complicated at this level. If I'm Pierce, though, Alan, I've got to think, this is my opportunity. Yes, I've been flashing. I better spend every waking second studying those nuances. Because right now, Alan, I don't think it's going to be going out on a limb to say that he looks like the best runner with the ball in his hands. I don't think that's even going on on a limb from what we've seen in his limited action. He looks like he's the best of those three guys. And that's not to say the other guys have looked bad. He just looks electric. I mean, there's there's some guys who just have it, and he seems like he does, at least right now. Maybe with more reps, he gets a little deemed up or whatever. But, yeah, get that guy the ball if you can. Let's look at the defense. Defense, interesting week to week here watching them on film. Do you think they improved this week, or was it primarily a downgrade in competition against Colorado State? This is hard to say. I want to say they improved a little bit. Colorado State doesn't really run the ball. They're not a, you know, they're the opposite of Kentucky essentially. So they're not going to line up and try to smash you. So we didn't see that. They did run the ball a little bit. Of course, their yardage didn't reflect it because of sacks. You know, I'll say I was a little worried about us in past defense. We're playing a true freshman, Trey Dean, who I thought quit himself very nicely in his first start. Looks like a guy who could be. A legit contributor. I don't know, though. I, I didn't see enough that made me go, oh, we fixed it. I didn't think we would. Uh, improvement, I'll say slight, considering the downgrading competition. Yeah, it feels like there was some better tackling on display. We had a few, a few blitz packages that got home. But to me, this feels like a downgrading competition. I think what you see from this defense is more or less what you're going to get in doses, especially when David Reese is not is not out there. I think we're just missing him significantly. So I, sure. I didn't think it was good nor bad. I thought there were some good players and some bad players and some good plays and bad plays. But all in all, primarily downgrade in competition would be how I would 
I would surmise last Saturday. Yeah, I would imagine you last week would have heavily criticized our linebackers and our safeties who had abysmal, abysmal games, you know, as did our defensive tackles, really everybody. Um, what was your thought about them this week? Did they improve enough for you to be not jumping up and down on the panic button? No, but a couple of thoughts here, and I'm going to start with the safeties because you and I highlighted the the unit that was going to struggle the most on defense was safety and that we were not SEC level and we are nowhere near it. I thought Brad Stewart might as well not even been on the field out there in that game. He wears number two. The amount of times that he he was completely out of position at safety was, was maybe half of his snaps on the field. Uh, there was a time even at the end of the game, uh, Colorado State's second string quarterback is in and they run like a, a corner and a corner route and he drops down on an out route and leaves the corner route completely unguarded. Quarterback does not see it, throws in double coverage. But on film, you just see how our safeties, they're, they're absolutely clueless. There were several of those middle drag routes, Alan, where they ran them across, we blitzed. That's the safety's responsibility to pick those guys up. And they're just five yards behind them, letting them catch the ball. They don't have a single clue where to go and what to do. Now, playing safety is not nearly as hard as other positions on the defensive uh, front, especially in college football. But it's very hard when you couple with the fact that we don't have good linebackers. So now you have got extra problems, right? You have Voshan Joseph, who I actually thought played a pretty good game. He played much better. I was getting a lot of text messages from people like, Voshan should be off the field. He's struggling. On film, he actually was extremely solid. We mentioned this at the start of the uh, year as well, Alan. Voshan's going to really excel when he's in the right packages, with a proper middle linebacker, which we do not have right now. And on top of that, we can't play dime. So they're rolling four receivers out there, and you have to have Voshan Joseph or Rashad Jackson or someone else guarding a receiver or a tight end. That's not the plan. But we are so depleted at corner, we don't have anyone else. So he's in a scenario that's not advantageous to him. But I think when you look at the the packages he should be in, he excels. He's an excellent tackler. He closes really quickly. So I think there's... There's upside, there's downside uh, to the safeties and linebackers. But the reality is we just don't have the SEC talent. We just don't have it, Alan. It's not going to change. I I don't see this unit becoming incredible. If David Reese can just stay healthy by some miracle for the rest of the year, it will improve because he can line people up correctly and communicate to the safeties. Hey, I need you to come down. He'll be in the right fit better more often than not. Third down and eight, safety. You communicate backwards. Hey, listen, if this receiver runs an in route, you have to come down and get that. He will give those guys the confidence to make that play. Whereas right now, it's a bunch of young guys that really don't have any idea what they're doing. And so they're playing slow. You see it on film. They're playing very slow on defense. We were fortunate. We were very fortunate, primarily thanks to Zuniga on several plays, that Colorado State could not expose that coverage because Zuniga was just blowing past people. We'll talk about him in a second. But I thought it was what it was. Alan, I want to ask you a question. The defensive tackles... And I'm going to steal this question from you. You're going to ask it to me, but I'm stealing it because on film, they've been non-existent. Literally, they are just getting blown off the ball consistently. So we start Campbell and Schuller over the traditional starters, Conliff, Slayton, Clark, etc. Is this a message being sent to those guys, the more talented guys, that we need more from you? What is this? I think so. Uh, I mean, Campbell is a decent player. Schuller is a transfer who is not even really a true tackle. He's more of a big end and it's like, we're going to need effort from you guys. Slayton should be a monster. Conliff, a beast. And those guys, like kitty cats. I don't know. Clark is a fine player. He, he's never going to like win or lose you a game, usually. I, I think the transition 
to those spots has been tougher on those guys. They're it's either they're not capable of being physical enough. And Slayton was a guy who was an offensive lineman in high school. So maybe he's just not fit to play D tackle like he should be, or they're in their heads and they're not firing off the ball. Mullins talked about this a lot. And this is weird for a coach to say, and I don't think it's just coach speak where they, they need to strain more. They need to be more aggressive. You can't, if the offensive line is firing off the ball at you and you're kind of like, you know, just getting up from your stance and be like, what's happening here? You're going to get blasted. And Kentucky blasted us. I mean, Snell was often two yards downfield before we were touching, and he's ending up six yards by the time we get him down the week before against Kentucky. So maybe that was a message. I don't know if it was fully received, but the coaching staff has got to get average play from those defensive tackles if we're going to be able to see Zuniga and Polite and Jefferson have the kind of years we want them to. And leading into Zuniga and Polite, who looked excellent once again on film, it's very difficult to play defensive tackle in a 3-4. It's extremely, it's weird. You're in a much different gap than you've ever been over before. You're, you're traditionally against Colorado State, taking on a double team the entire game. And I think what Dan Mullen is trying to convey to these guys is that in a 3-4 defense, you're always going to be taking on a double team as a tackle. Gone are the days when you can Dante Fowler it and you get to be one-on-one with the center and you blast through the A-gap and you get a nice little sack. That's not how it works in a 3-4. Your job is to take on that double team, hold the line of scrimmage because you're a hoss, and allow your ends to come in and then create basically a cocoon around what the offense wants to do. We are nowhere near doing that. And we are experimenting with every possible defensive line combination we can use. In that Colorado State game, we must have played every permutation that existed. I mean, they are just searching for answers there. I think we found a couple in Zuniga at right end. I mean, he was an absolute monster. They could not even touch him going around No chance. And he only played maybe half the snaps on defense. And whenever he was in, I mean, he, he might as well have been sprinting straight past their left tackle. And polite, same deal. So I think you're starting to find some of these guys that are playing. I thought CeCe, although he didn't do anything of note in the game, he was extremely competent on his side. And that's what allowed Zuniga to be so free, is you saw CeCe, unlike what we saw against Kentucky, he was able to set the edge. He was in the proper position almost all the time. And that did not allow Colorado State to be able to really run a whole lot of stuff that side of the field, because we had the edge protection. And that frees up the pass rusher to just get after it. And that's how it's supposed to work. So we're seeing a lot of growing pains right now, Alan. But the D-tackles are going to step their game up significantly starting this week with Tennessee. So when they release the depth chart, and this is hard to know, you know, they're playing, you know, Conliff at the at the nose tackle and Slayton at the other D-tackle. This gets super complicated. Everyone uses different lingo. But I thought, hmm, that's weird. And they're playing Zuniga at defensive end, and they're playing, you know, playing the rest of these guys at, you know, the rush buck position, the outside linebacker who you, we run them at the quarterback almost every time. We don't have the perfect pieces yet. Zuniga's a little small for that end. Um, he's not, I mean, he's smaller than polite, I think, or maybe even Jefferson. Now he's obviously super strong, and so that allows him to hold up to the edge. So you would think Slayton is a the premier nose tackle, and they're not really playing him there, which that shows me they don't know what they have yet, and these guys haven't figured it out. And I don't know if we do it all this year, but there's like you said, they're still mixing and matching, and 
I don't know what to expect from that group week to week. Now, we thought this would be the strength of the team, and at least from a run defensive like perspective, it's not. But maybe those guys can figure it out. There's still a path forward for me with them. We'll have to see. Uh, anybody else who flashed for you this week? I thought, really, it was Zuniga and Polite on defense, and then you saw a couple of moments. I thought that it was good to see Johnson out there playing yeah. really well. I thought he had a nice game. I've always thought he's our best coverage linebacker. He did a nice job in coverage during the entire game. For some reason, though, he doesn't he doesn't seem to make enough of an impact in the run game. He just gets swallowed, and that's why you don't see him as a He doesn't consistent. shed blocks. He doesn't get he uh, doesn't. into the gap when he needs to. He doesn't. He's an excellent coverage linebacker. And so you kind of have this scenario where if you could merge Voshan and Kylan, then you'd have like an SEC linebacker on every down. Uh, we just don't have that. And so I think each of those guys, again, can play a role, especially when flanked by a David Reese. So hopefully that's my main like flashing takeaway is if we can get some synergy there, that will help everyone across the board. But right now, Alan, Zuniga and Polite look like they're consistently going to get production for us. Polite can do it against elite teams. Zuniga, still a question as to whether he can get past the bigger and better left tackles. Uh, in the SEC. Well, it's also how we line him up. I don't think we've been putting him in a position to register the kind of pressure that he's capable of. I mean, he was absolutely dominant. Their left tackle looked like he'd never played football before. So that was super impressive. I I was encouraged to see him, you know, get into the backfield like that. So here's the problem with this defense right now. We've talked about, I have all these hopes. I hope that David Reese will make a difference. I have a hope that maybe Sean Davis will lock down another safety spot. I hope that they can figure out the defensive line rotation. I hope that Trey Dean can be serviceable at corner. That's a lot of hopes. You know, I think we came into the season where, like, I hope the corner stays healthy. I have a lot more hopes now. That's not great. Let's talk about special teams. Obviously, huge production. Block punts, run backs, points on the board. Okay, the question here, were they as good as they looked, or is, did you see something just really wrong with CSU? In between. I, I have no idea why Colorado State runs a two-man protector punt formation. Especially against what we're running at them. We are clearly outnumbering them at the line of scrimmage. And so the reason they're using two is they choose to have three gunners, which is like, ooh, look at us, we can run a fake at any time. But they're often punting in like fourth and 17 situations, which is also nonsensical. I, I cannot... If I'm a Colorado State podcaster right now, I'm having a whole 10 minutes on this subject. I'm going to spare you that just to <laughs> Can say. Can we call them and talk to those guys? Yeah, just fun. to say that, that's extremely questionable. And, and you cannot chalk up those blocks to us just phenomenally beating the guys in front of us. We had a numerical advantage. We ran through unblocked holes and blocked punts. That's good. The good news is we, we did were, do it. We executed it. Because oftentimes in previous regimes, we haven't been able to execute it. So if you do something dumb, we've proven that we can get you on that. The Freddie Swain punt return was nice. The punter hammered the punt, the classic outkick the coverage against a much more athletic team. But the blocks downfield were actually really, really good. And also, that wasn't a punt return unit. We had our base defense out on the field plus Freddie Swain. So I don't know who to give credit to that to, but excellent job by Swain weaving through there. And those guys who normally don't do punt return, you know, helping him out. And phenomenal job by, by Chauncey Gardner not to lay a block in the back. Yes. Thank you. If you're not on special teams a lot, you just want to crush that guy. And uh, there were several great blocks. You might, you really might want to consider putting that unit out there again on Saturday and giving them a crack at it. Because look, sometimes it's good. Everyone would do this, motivate your special teams unit, create some competition, 
But there were a lot of nice blocks out there. Those guys wanted to hit people. It was so weird. They weren't even in. They were just in base defense with, you know, Swain basically playing like extreme deep safety. They were in their normal formation. I was so shocked at that. Also, if you're Greg Nord, I mean, Swain was on the team. It's not like we just, oh, we found this guy. He's a transfer. He's a freshman. And you were still running Brandon Powell out there to return punts. I, I don't know. I don't think under Greg Nord we would have attacked the punter in those formations before. I, I, so, yes, huge improvement on special teams that we're at, we're at least competent, that we're dangerous. I think we'll continue to get better at that. Kickoff coverage looked flawed. We need to get that buttoned up definitely because they're not – we're going to get creased there. If We're not going to be able to chase the guy down against some of these premier return teams. Now, you know, kick return, we didn't have any of those really, so whatever. Uh, but encouraging, I think, certainly from where we were last year. And McPherson, i got to say, the kid, I mean, he hasn't missed yet. I hate that he has a miss on his resume after that, you know, crazy call by the referee. But looks solid, looks like he's ready to kick in big situations. We'll see how he does on the road. He's He's legit. I mean, you can tell that that he has all the tools. Now the question with any kicker is, does he maintain the composure? You know, we had, If he actually does miss, how does he respond? Correct. We had Caleb Sturgis on the show last year co-hosting, which was a good time. And whenever you talk about kickers with Caleb, that's what it comes down to. Is, hey, all that really matters to Caleb as an NFL kicker is when this guy misses a kick in a big game, what does he do after it? Right. Because virtually any kicker at this level has a leg to make these kicks nowadays. It's the mental game. So far, though, he looks really, really solid, which is good news for us. He was the best guy in the country, but you never know how that turns out. So final thoughts on this game as we project sort of what we're looking into here in the future. Alan, we started to run the ball more, especially in the second half of this game. Does that feel like a recipe for success for this team moving forward? Potentially. We actually look like we started blocking well. And maybe with certain fronts and certain formations or certain plays that our offensive line is more comfortable blocking in, the, the coaching staff needs to find more of those. We need to be able to run the ball effectively and often. And I'm someone, you know, I'm from the Spurrier area. I want to see us throw the ball over the field, but I also want to see us win games somewhere in the middle there. I, I don't want us to run the ball into heavy fronts, you know, a la Nussmeyer. You know, it's second down. We're going to run the ball no matter how many men you have in the box because we have to get on schedule. I don't think Mullen's going to do that. And what I mean by that is find the plays and the combinations of back and line that's going to get us into good situations you have to stay committed to it. it. Seems like we abandoned it too early against Kentucky. So I, it could be. It could be. I'm hopeful that it might be. There's that word again, hope, I guess. I hope. Lots of hope. The recipe for success for this team is to be able to run the ball, period. I think the problem is that we're, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do it. I like, as an offensive philosophy, what Dan Mullen has a spouse, but has kind of abandoned a bit here and there, I think because it indicates maybe how he truly feels about the offense. You have got to do what the defense lets you do. You have to do that. So if we play Tennessee this weekend and Tennessee wants to come out and they say, we're going to dare you to run the ball, we're going to let you have a one-man advantage every single time in the box, run the ball every single play. And all of you on this show know that I much favor the passing offense. But the offense Dan Mullen has created creates a numbers game where read number one on every single play 
is how many guys are in the run box. And if I've got an equal number or a plus one advantage, I should always run. We have not been doing that. And that sounds crazy for me to say. But again, I think all of you that know me know that you have to play the game the right way. The best advantage, probability-wise, is to run plays that have the best chance of success. And that oftentimes has to do with the personnel that you are going against. So it will, Alan, be a recipe if teams continue to defend us with a soft cover two, basically daring us to actually run the ball with any success. Which is weird. We're going to have to run it. It's the total opposite of last year. It's the complete opposite of last year. So it is weird on film to be seeing such a difference. But Kentucky put the model out there. I think everyone sees it now, and you're going to keep seeing it. I mean, Colorado State was doing nothing tricky. Uh, Tennessee was played against you know Dan Mullen a lot uh, with Jeremy Pruitt. I expect them to do similar style defense until proven otherwise. Okay, let's take a look at some of our preseason predictions. When we did the schedule walkthrough, James, you predicted seven wins. I did eight. Does that still seem like on target to you? Yeah, it feels spot on, right? I mean, it feels like we're still going to be somewhere right around there. It feels like this is a team that had a lot of holes and a lot of gaps, like we said. It feels like this is a team that was thin and is not SEC caliber on the two deep. And it's really not even SEC caliber with the ones all the way across the board. This is what kind of team this is. So to me, that's a seven or eight win team. Eight win if you get a little lucky. We could have won the Kentucky game, right? That could have only won. Uh, we could win or lose virtually any game we play. But if I had to bet on it, it feels like we're probably going to fall right into seven or eight, especially with what's going on with Florida State. We're not going to have a thousand yard running back, much to Tyler's chagrin, our buddy Tyler, who chastised both of us after we didn't pick a thousand yard rusher. And we tried to explain that it's not that we couldn't have one. It's that we're not going to be able to have one. There's too many guys getting carries. There's too many things going on. Same thing with the receiver getting more than, you know, six or 700 yards. Is the talent there? Sure. Sure, absolutely it's there. But it's not going to be displayed with the current guys that we have. So I feel good's not the right word, maybe. But I feel like, Alan, I've seen nothing that pulls me off of my seven-win projection. I feel like this is the kind of team that looks like a seven-win team. I'm going to downgrade my predictions. or I feel worse about them. I was eight, maybe nine. So there's some teams on the schedule. I, I predicted a loss to LSU, I believe. But I felt like that was maybe a coin flip. Now it feels like they look much improved, although I, you know, I'm still not totally sold on them. Missouri looks better than I probably thought they were. Vanderbilt looks better than I thought they were. South Carolina, uh, you know, FSU is obviously worse. The Mississippi State game feels like further away. Like This Tennessee game is also, you know, we're going to talk about it. It's going to be a coin flip kind of scenario for us. I see much more opportunities for us to end up at six than I previously did. Um, now, we'll see as we get to each game. There's a lot that could happen. But I feel less bullish on our nine-win capability unless something dramatically changes. And that that's kind of unfortunate. But losing that Kentucky game was a big peg in that process. Not only we lost the win, I think we lost some of the momentum and projection forward. And some of the teams on the schedule look a little bit better than I thought at the beginning of the season. And you lost the most important player on defense, potentially Marco Wilson. Right. That was the position we could not lose a guy in, and we lost him. And we're seeing the effects of that already. All right, national game recaps. Interesting week last week. We were robbed of West Virginia at NC State. I love on the podcast how you said that I love Will Greer more than any other Florida quarterback. Probably true. 
so I was robbed of watching him play. That could potentially hurt him in the Heisman race. We're not going to yeah, get maybe. too far ahead of there. Could be. But USC, led by Clay Hilton, gets demolished by a second-half run from Tom Herman's Texas. There was a lot of concern about Tom Herman. I would have loved to have mentioned after the Kentucky game that, hey, there's a three-year rule for a reason he's in year two. He's doing a lot of things right. I think he clearly proved that Clay Hilton is way more of the fraudulent coach who lucked into a stud in Sam Darnold. If I'm a USC fan, Alan, I'm pressing the panic button. If I'm a Texas fan, I still feel decent about where I'm going. Good win for Texas. They need, This was like... Whoever loses this game has got to feel real bad about their season. Now Texas is, you know, every time Texas wins, like they're back. I'm not saying Texas is back, but I'll, I feel better about their prospects. Ohio State in a wild game against TCU, very very close, really for a long time, pulls it out. Urban Meyer su- survives his suspension. Yeah. He's back with an undefeated team. Your thoughts on this? That is one? a great win for Ohio State at TCU, who has perennially underrated. I love Gary, Gary Patterson. This is an important win for them. I don't know what the future holds. The Big Ten, we'll talk about this in a second, took a giant dump on the field collectively. So it seems like their path forward is looking more and more clear. Yeah, this game was played at Jerry World, but in Texas and not in Ohio. So still certainly home field there. This is my lock of the week. I wasn't in the pod, but this is the one I bet on last week. Alabama somehow, by the odds makers, was only a 21-point favorite over Old Miss, which has got to be... One of the worst lines that I've seen created in a long time. All they did was promptly win 62-7 to after Ole Miss scored on the first play from scrimmage. That It's crazy that this didn't hit the over two, by the way. Uh, there was like, it was like 50-something to seven at halftime. Um, yeah, Ole Miss, uh, they put up a lot of points, but against people who weren't playing any defense. And there was no way Alabama wasn't putting up 60 against Ole Miss. I mean, if other teams are putting up 40... I mean, Tua also, I mean, just as a side note, we're wondering, is it, this guy's the Heisman favorite. He hasn't really started a game. Looks like the real deal, for and, sure. And we said, Alan, we said last year, hey, I dog Nick Saban all the time for this. You're playing the floor strategy. I hate the floor strategy. He could unlock a freaking juggernaut. It looks like right now that Alabama is unlocking the juggernaut. And I'm going to say this. I hate Alabama. But man. Do I appreciate watching them play a hundred times more than I ever have? Because that's the kind of football you should play when you have the most ridiculous, the most ridiculous assembly of talent that any college team could have. It's it's insane. I, I have a really hard time imagining anybody beating them. I'm really looking forward to this weekend with the matchup against Jimbo Fisher. Game of the weekend was the LSU-Auburn game. We have dogged Coach O on this show relentlessly, and all he does is go into another coach that frustrates his fans. Musgrove talked about it on the podcast. LSU breaks Auburn's heart 22-21 with what had to have been one of the most excruciating fourth quarters for Auburn fans in recent memory. Huge win for LSU. Two wins over top 10 teams now. Out of their first three games. This hurts if you're Auburn because you get by this game and you've got a pretty soft schedule in the middle till you get to the murder drove of Georgia and Bama at the end. And that a real shot at the playoff. They could lose one of those games. And that Mississippi State in there too. But, you know, this has got to be crushing because they, they were looking – after that Washington win, they were looking like a playoff team. Okay, let me ask you about Coach O. Do we need to reconsider our views on him? I mean, this is, this is a big win. 
Not yet, but I will I will absolutely give him credit where credit is due. In his previous regimes, he has been completely discombobulated. Now we've had we've had a, a good friend of the program ask us a question this week on Facebook about was he just in the wrong situations at those times? Was he just inheriting bad programs? No, no, he was not. Those programs regressed significantly under his care and they regressed pretty quickly. I think LSU was smart to recognize that he is really not a good football coach, but he's an unbelievable rah-rah, Cajun, Bayou Bengal <laughs> that can get the players there. And they surrounded him with guys that fit his philosophy. So they fired Matt Canada, who I think is widely regarded as one of the best offensive coordinators. And they got him a guy this year who most Tiger fans thought we are regressing to the 1920s with offense. But that was smart because that's the kind of football he wants to play. He's not Bill Belichick. He's not Nick Saban. He's not a particularly smart football coach when it comes to being creative or even tactically, you know, solid. He's an old school coaching cliche. But Allen, if you have the talent, and LSU always has the talent, you can be formidable if you don't make mistakes. The move of Ed Orgeron's coaching career was getting Joe Burrow from Ohio State. Now, Joe Burrow has not lit the world on fire with his numbers, but he has played extremely competent football. My main thought here, Allen, is why the F did we not go after Joe Burrow? We talked about it. Here he is. LSU is now undefeated, 3-0, beating two top 10 teams. You take Joe Burrow off that team, this is a 1-2 LSU team. So that's what I'll say about Edo. I think he managed the offseason really well. I still do not have confidence he's going to take LSU to levels that even less miles took them to. I could be wrong, but that's how I view Edo at this point. But I will give him credit. It's definitely improved now. What do you think about this? I would agree with you almost totally. I I was expecting them to fall on their face this year, and that's not going to happen. Because they weren't, this wasn't like a sure thing. They they've lost some talent both offensively and defensively. Like you said, still a ton. So credit them. This is a huge win. I I want to say though, this is more of an Auburn loss than LSU win. Auburn didn't score in the fourth quarter, and this has been a criticism of Malzahn that you know he kind of gets things rolling. He's going to crush you, or you're going to figure out what he's doing in the game, and he doesn't adjust well, and didn't look like he adjusted well. Jared Stidham is supposed to be a star. If he's a star, he's going to put some points on the board in the fourth quarter. Even a field goal obviously would have sewn this up. So Auburn, yeah, tough look for them. Speaking of coaches, this is something I'm excited about. Let's do a little review of some of the coaches in the running for the UF job. Willie Taggart, Scott Frost, Chip Kelly. Let's let's start with our boy Chip Kelly. Let's save the best one for last year. Um, we've talked about on the pod, Chip looks disinterested. Our does it feel like UCLA is so far behind that he's dug so much of a hole he's not going to be able to get out of? Or are you, are you still hopeful that they're going to be able to turn it around in Westwood? I think he'll turn it around. And I and I want to answer this question this way first. Okay, Do I feel good now that we didn't get Chip Kelly? That's not No, I don't feel like that's the case. UCLA was a team that lost almost all of its talent. And, and on the flip side, Alan, UCLA, this is actually kind of crazy, but UCLA had more players drafted than any other Pac-12 team in the past five years. So they had a lot of talent. All of it was gone. This is an extremely young roster. Uh, Chip Kelly, though, as you mentioned, and we said this in the pod, right? We said there's two ways this goes for Chip Kelly. Either the dude only wants to coach in the NFL, and Caleb Sturgis was 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 definitive that this was the guy that only wanted to coach in the NFL, so I'll give you a hat tip, Caleb. It looks like he only wants to coach in the NFL. 
So with that regard, you know, you and I never viewed Chip as a guy that was going to be here for 10 years. He was sort of like, look, well, I'm two, three, four years. Best case scenario, we've got talent, we're white hot. But I want to step back and just say this. He, he looks lost to me. I don't think he knows what he wants to run anymore. And that's the part that scares me the most. So I'm going to say we did potentially dodge a huge bullet on Chip Kelly because he looks disinterested. And I think the NFL has made him reconsider all of his offensive thoughts. But sometimes you got to recognize that you're not in the NFL anymore and that what you can run in college and be successful with is different than what you run in the NFL. Yeah, I think the fact that he chose the UCLA job over Florida is a window to his mindset. You couldn't have said that definitively because I didn't know enough about the UCLA situation back when it happened. But it seemed like he wasn't ready to enter into the meat grinder of the SEC. He took an easier job that, you know, less pressure, longer rebuild potentially. But yeah, I I think we did dodge a little bit of a bullet. Okay, a guy also 0-2 because they lost a game to a, hur- to a hurricane or something else. They're like a you know, serious rainstorm, but yeah. Yeah, something like that. Uh, our boy that we're most excited, or at least I was most excited to hire a Scott Frost. Is that damper your feelings about him, the fact that they're 0-2? None whatsoever. Most great coaches have questionable first years. The Urban Meyer story is famous. We lose the game on the road. He stops the plane. There's a 20-minute speech. We wind up going 7-6 and six that year. Is that right? We also had quarterback issues. We had a lot of issues. Well, so does no, Scott. We're, we're right. playing like a we're converted quarterback at wide receiver. Right? Yeah, so we had issues in the roster, right? Well, Scott Frost has tremendous issues with this Nebraska roster. There's not a lot of talent. They're almost exclusively all the wrong players for what he wants. His freshman quarterback, whom he loves, is not playing because he's injured it's, this is the this is the horrible scenario that's hitting him right now. It does not. I have zero luster lost for Scott Frost. I think that he will get this turned around. He has repeatedly said this was not going to be a fast turnaround. I mean, he's, he said it as much as he could possibly say it. And I think Allen, to me, unlike Chip Kelly, Scott Frost didn't seem to want to take the Nebraska job for this reason. I think he knew how hard it was to win in Nebraska. And I think Scott Frost, unlike Chip Kelly wants to be a college coach, and wants to win. And nobody wants to deal with the crap he's going to be dealing with right now, with the questions, the thoughts, the frustration, the team mutinies. And he basically said after the game, we've got to figure out who wants to be here to recognize where we're going and who doesn't, which is very reminiscent of the Urban Meyer quote when he told the plane, listen, you're either on or you're off. Make a decision. And so I think all great coaches tend to have this culture shift change. We don't know what frost ceiling is. I'll readily admit that. We do not know that. Uh, we didn't know what it was at Remeyer either. But I think that he's so far not causing anything for me to panic, although less desirable start than they wanted. They have a very difficult schedule. This could be a very rough year for Scott Frost. He's got to survive. I mean, I think actually if Martinez had played the rest of that first game and this game, they they might have won both games. They have a really difficult schedule. They might win one or two games this year. Can he survive with enough goodwill that people aren't turning? I think the Nebraska faithful are so high in him. I think it'll be okay. They're they're pretty educated, you know, as far as fan bases go, fairly patient group. I think he'll be all right. Okay. I'm gonna use the word delicious scenario that has come about. The FSU Seminoles under Willie Taggart. We thought this could be a rough hire. He's very unproven, losing record, only one good year, really. Was in some tough places to win. 
they, as someone said, look like they don't even practice. I That offensive line is abysmal. It's been abysmal. But it looks especially bad. I mean, the Syracuse defensive end, and no one is saying Syracuse has world-class defensive ends, look like Von Miller out there. I mean, crushing fools. I'll give DeAndre Francois credit. He is tough as nails. He gets up from everything. I mean, it seems like a total, total meltdown. I'm loving every minute of it. James, is it as bad as it looks? It might be worse. Yo! It might be worse. I can't think of a... a, In in modern history, past 30 years, Okay, coaching hires. And feel free to write us, by the way, on Facebook. This this is not well thought out. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, whatever. This feels like, reactionarily, the worst coaching hire in the modern era. I can't... I mean, there's been some bad ones, but I cannot recall a team with this much talent. This is a team with top five talent. They are loaded at almost every position. And I know now their offensive line is getting slammed. And yeah, they're not good. They weren't good last year. But regardless, you're playing against Syracuse. I mean, Syracuse. Syracuse is decent, but picked last in their division. You can't score points. You can't get first downs. And like you mentioned, it's style. We said Dan Mullen, style. If I'm Willie Taggart, I'm doing a Florida State podcast. Year one, style. They look uncoached. In fact, they look worse than uncoached. It's almost believable to think the players got together on their own, they would be doing better. They cannot do a single thing right on offense. It is awful. And dare I say it, Alan, it looks worse than anything we ever saw under McElwain and Muschamp. We saw some horrific offense. I love every second of this so much. I cannot put it into words. The Florida faithful have remained by the team through eight years of complete suckery. You know what? The stadium's (laughs) not completely full. Fine. Florida State fans will never, there will be no one in that stadium. Nobody will show up. They've already created the little fun, you know, GoFundMe accounts to fire Willie Taggart. A $21 million buyout. Which is crazy. What are these athletic directors doing? You said this in the car to me. Who else was trying to hire Willie Taggart? This is his dream job. He left Oregon. I know they were, felt like they were desperate, but you're hiring an unproven guy and you give him a $21 million buyout insanity and we had an entire podcast on buyouts in the offseason when we talked with bill carr the former florida athletic director and we had this conversation you and i alan said and i said in a free market this is absolutely insane these athletic directors have to stop doing this he was going to take that job without that kind of buyout let him walk who cares yeah, who's but hiring him away? This was the guy that we most pinpointed and said, A, we're super happy Florida State hired him right away, right? Because he seems like a great recruiter, but a horrible coach. And that's exactly what's going on. It's exactly what's going on. I, at this point in time, it's hard to envision he can still be a good recruiter. If this season goes the way it could, they might only win two or three games, Alan. Can he still recruit two or three games well, with the way does, things are looking? Now he looks lost out there. I mean, they look so bad. And this is the soft part of their schedule. They're playing Northern Illinois. We're going to get to that in a second. If you look at the rest of their schedule, it gets only tougher. And there's teams who are normally not that good, like NC State and Boston College, who are good this year. Man, I'm enjoying every second of this. They should have lost to Samford. If you hear me say Samford, not Stanford. Syracuse was, we'll see. They might be frisky this year, but that was one of the easier games on their schedule. And they got freaking pantsed. It wasn't even that close. Man, okay. And we said it, Alan. We said it. I want to tie up this little bow. We nailed this one. (laughs) We said, 
Florida State fans have no idea how good Jimbo Fisher was. They just had no clue. No clue. And people would approach us about this and say, oh, you know, James, you think Jimbo Fisher's good? Every Florida State game, you talk about watching on film. They're really solid. I think he's overrated. He is not overrated. I think he's proven that at A&M already. And sometimes you just don't recognize what you have. So Florida State, I'm so happy for you. I hope this goes on for 9, 10, 20, 30 years from now. I hope you're never good again. I don't need Florida State to be good. Now we're going to talk about Tennessee later. I want Tennessee to be good because I love that rivalry. But Florida State... Forget it. You can suck forever. I'm happy. It's better for us. I don't care about you anymore. All right. Taylor Jacobs looming large. Damn. All right. Let's talk about Joe Moorhead real briefly here because this doesn't. He doesn't fit in this list. We were never going to hire him. But is he? You were super bullish on him. So through a few games, is he what you thought he was? Or he he looks incredible, but he hasn't had the competition yet to know. Right. If you go read the Mississippi State message boards, they're like on cloud nine. Now he walked into a home run situation. By all accounts, this was the best Mississippi State team that Dan Mullen has even had. But, Alan, I think it's safe to say, though, when he hired him, what did we say? We said, that's the kind of hire you should make at Mississippi State. He's either going to be a grand slam and he takes you past where Mullen took you, or he flames out. But that's the right hire. They did not hire a caretaker. They took a shot. And we like that hire. That's why I still like the Scott Frost hire. The Chip Kelly hire was a weird one for all of us, admittedly, not working out. The Taggart hire... Seemed awful for the reasons that we just talked about. It's not a Moorhead. It's not a Frost. It's a guy with a with a blase record. And that circles all the way back to Ed Orgeron with his losing record as a head coach. It's hard to believe he will not regress to that level. But this is a fun one, Alan. The Big Ten. Just Let me who, just read this. Who Kurt Herbstreet said, before you read this list, before the year, the Big Ten East was the best conference division in college football, says Kurt Herbstreet. Not the SEC West, the Big Ten. Tell me about their weekend last weekend. And so this is a lot of the Big Ten West as well. But I'm just going to read you this. Kansas, I think we all know about Kansas, beats Rutgers by 41. Northwestern loses to Akron. Akron hadn't beat like a Power 5 school since like the 70s. Nebraska loses to Troy. Troy is good, by the way. Troy is good. Let's take nothing away from Troy. Troy is good. Still non-Power 5. Wisconsin, this one hurts, loses to BYU. They were everyone's playoff pick. Maryland, who looked great against Texas, loses to Temple. Wow. Purdue loses to Mizzou. They were evenly matched. Illinois loses to USF. That's probably not a surprise. That is a horrific showing for a conference. All of that is out of conference. They all get trashed. I mean, other than Ohio State, who are you like looking at? I mean, I guess Iowa is going to sneak in there and be good this year because everyone else is hot garbage. We'll see if anyone can recover. But that is a bad, bad look. It just comes down to looking at the athletes that these teams have. Kansas, Northwestern. And Northwestern is a, is a, is a KG football team. This is what they do. They'll be up and down. They're all right. That's, that's less probably troublesome. Nebraska on the way up. Wisconsin is the one where you look at it and you say – what the F is happening in Wisconsin. I mean, BYU is not good. Not bad. Also not good. They've, in fact, been like kind of down in the yeah. past couple of years. They're not normally like no. their normal BYU. They're not their normal self. And BYU was the better team in that football game. So that's a problem. And then, you know, Maryland is where they are. I don't know. I think the point of this is, though, right? People, got, people love—the media loves to get high in the Big Ten. 
I cannot figure out why that is. It's been that way forever. They just want the Big Ten to be good. I'm not sure if a lot of the media came from the Big Ten schools, and that's their love affair. But the Big Ten hasn't been good in a long time, top to bottom, period. It just hasn't been. Well, they made the best coaching hires recently, and that and the SEC was making bad coaching hires, and they caught up. But I don't know what was happening. The, this, a lot of this is the Big Ten West, but they all, like I said, crapped the bed. Okay, actually, James, let me walk us through the SEC roundup here. Let's start with MTSU 7, Georgia 49. Georgia's Alabama 2.0, and quite frankly, Alan, this game was also easy money. This is the second game I bet on this past weekend. They were a 33-point favorite, and I thought, this is this is crazy. Georgia is a juggernaut. I hate it every single week. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, but at some point in time, Alan, you have to acknowledge that Kirby Smart, this is not a slump. He was not. He didn't need his running backs, Nick Chubb and Sonny Michelle, to be good. Whoever of you thought that, stop thinking that. Georgia is not going away for a long time. So just settle in for the pain train because it's not going down. Oh, man. Murray State 10, Kentucky 48. I mean, this is Murray State, but Kentucky, are they better than we think they would have been? Yes, but they're incredibly one-dimensional. But they are better. Terry Wilson is be. legit athlete. Yeah, he is. And, and they're using them, you know, wisely. I think, uh, like we talked about on the pod, their offensive coordinator tends to be a pass-first guy. But he has not had the talent to do it at Kentucky. And he's gotten really creative in running a glorified freshman high school running offense. But he's good at it. And the defense, the, the biggest key, I think, for Kentucky, Allen, is the defense seems to be drastically improved. Maybe they're top 50 this year. And they've been 100 in the past. But they're not for real. They're going to lose a bunch of games. It, their time is coming. But still better than expectations. Vandy, 17, Notre Dame, 22. Vandy could have won this game. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what to think of this yet. I shorted Notre Dame in my long short poll where you pick which teams you think are going to drop out of the poll or fall back. So I was really rooting for Vanderbilt, even more so than normal. I don't know what to think, but three games throughout it, Vandy looked good. And I want to I wanna quote Chris Musgrove, who jokingly last week said, Vandy's legit. Maybe they are legit. It's hard to say they're not legit kind of right now. I don't like that. I want Vandy to be bad. You said you want Tennessee to be good. I want Vandy to be bad. Somebody else was saying, watch out for Vandy. I mean, they, they put up a fight. Makes me think that Notre Dame is not as good as they looked week one against Michigan. Okay. North, North Texas, 44. Arkansas, 17. North Texas is spunky. I'll say that. But I'll have to just go ahead and admit that I was wrong on the Chad Morris thing, at least in the short term. I thought I was higher on Arkansas than most people coming in the season, and that is going to be a much longer transition than I thought. Yeah, year one again here. I, I like Chad Morris still. I think we'll get things going in the right direction there. That's an abysmal result after an abysmal collapse against Colorado State. I imagine there's a lot of locker room turmoil going on right now. Big culture shift having to be done there. And again, Chad Morris's style is the complete opposite, complete opposite. of Brett Bielema. So you expect some pain there. I think Arkansas fans will be patient, but that's, oh, that is, I mean, they got beat like a drum. That's ugly. Mizzou 40, Purdue 37. This is a wild game. I didn't get to see any of this, which is unfortunate. Jeff Brom is another guy who we're, we're very high on. Uh, and, and I feel like Purdue has had a weird start this year. They haven't got it done. This is a, this is a good game. I think I said before the season, Alan, I thought Missouri was going to be good. I picked us to lose to Missouri uh, because I felt like they're going to be good. 
uh, I feel like you're shaking your head at me like I didn't. I, well, I wasn't buying it. I yeah, thought the OC change <laughs> was going to sink them, and maybe it's not. No, I think Drew Locke's outstanding. I think the ICC East doesn't have quarterbacks. By the way, Kyle Schirmer at Vandy is also good. But this is a big win for Missouri coming into the game this weekend. They're full of confidence. They got pants by Purdue last year. Yeah, this is a huge turnaround. This is one of the more, I'll just put this out there, this is one of the more incredible turnarounds from a coach that I have witnessed. Because... I think I even said in the pod, there's a 0% chance he was going to survive the season when we did like a hot seat thing. Yeah. And not only did he survive, they won like, what is it, like nine of their last 10 games or some something crazy something like, like that. that. They're on an absolute tear. So I think Missouri is for real as a like second slash third tier team. They're certainly not for real as a contender in the SEC East, but I think that they're feisty and that they could give they could give these lesser teams a game. If you're Jeff Brom's squad, probably not a bad loss for a Purdue fan. I think if anything, you feel like, yeah, you're like a middle SEC East team right now. That's pretty good. All right, UL Monroe 10, Texas A&M 48. Nothing to see here from this game, but you didn't get to comment on the A&M Clemson game. I get, I know you were impressed by that. Oh, I got to watch that whole game sitting in this little bar in Whitefish, Montana, outside Glacier National Park, and I was beyond impressed. I feel like A&M probably should have won that game. Yeah. It, it still made me think, though, Alan. I'm not sure if Clemson is as good as Clemson fans want them to be. Mm. And by I'm not sure, I mean I think I'm 100% sure. A&M is not ready to play it, but I will say this about Jimbo. His offense is absolutely prolific. I've said it once. I'll say it a million times. That is my favorite offense to Even break down Even with like a, a quarterback who doesn't fit it. And Kelly Mond lit the, the world on fire. But that offense is so hard to stop. And Clemson is no joke. They've got multiple NFL defenders on that team, and he was having his way with them. That's one of the more fun college football games I've seen in a long time. Really, really enjoyed that. All I can think is Dabo Sweeney gets on the plane and thinks, thank you, Lord, that I do not have to play Jimbo Fisher anymore. I am so done with playing this guy because now he gets an ACC that's a punching bag for him to run through. So that's favorable for Clemson. Yeah, we might not find out how good Clemson is until the playoff. That's we'll very see. true. Yeah, very true. All right, UTEP zero, our opponent this week, the Volunteers 24. We'll get to them. But, this is a bad, yeah. bad game. Tennessee was up 10 nothing at halftime, 17 nothing in the fourth quarter. Alan, the scary part of this is I watched that Kentucky film before we played them, and they looked bad. They looked legitimately bad. And I commented in the second half they looked better. Tennessee looks bad on film. We look okay on film. When you watch both of us, you just if I, if I covered up all the logos and teams and you watch, you look at our team and think, this team's not very good. You look at Tennessee and think, that's a bad football team, which kind of scares me because <laughs> Kentucky I made felt, a huge leap from week one. I week felt two. very strong about Kentucky looking bad on film and also not being good. And they made a big time leap when they stepped up to SEC play. We are not West Virginia. We will not attack Tennessee like West Virginia did. But I think the summation on that game is. They looked bad, and we're going to talk more about that. UTEP is a horrible football team. UNLV scored like 50 points on them in the first half. So what does that mean for us? We're going to find out. But so far, the Jeremy Pruitt regime is 2-1, and one, but I'm not sure how I'm feeling if I'm a Tennessee fan. All right, let's thank some patrons. One of my favorite segments. Thank you, guys. For those of you who are not patrons, you can head on to Patreon. Just type in Gator Nation Fall Podcast Patreon. You can click links on our Facebook page, Twitter page, wherever you find us. And you can throw us some donos, a word I know that the Sites Brothers really enjoy every time I throw it out there. I want to thank uh, Jeff Levin, David Roberts, Connor Siegmeister, Great if that's name. right. could be Siegmeister, uh, Chris Borales, Shannon Bradley, Amar Vetti, 
That's Stephen Bentfelt, Chris Hall, Thomas Upshaw, TJ Nowick, Tyler Pierce, Cameron Todd, and Anthony Lapore. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Alan and I appreciate it greatly. We love giving you shout-outs. Of course, keep giving us feedback uh, as we love love hearing from you guys. And on Patreon, you can you can certainly contact us anytime. We love we love hearing your thoughts, suggestions, questions, etc. And Alan, now it is time to flip the script. Let's do it. And head into Tennessee week. Let's do it. Okay. UT is two and one. We are a four and a half point favorite. Before we start looking at the nuts and bolts of Tennessee, we usually like to talk when we get to this moment. Like, we love this week. We love Tennessee week. Uh, Has this game lost some of its luster for you a little bit? I hate to say this, but yeah, like so much luster is gone this year for a variety of reasons. Even if I thought to myself today, if Tennessee was awesome, would this game have luster? More, but not enough. So... Little Peyton, my guy, you know, our trophy. We're going to talk about him in a second. I was just like, eh, pulling him out today. I've never really been like that. Just, eh. You know, this is like going on year nine of Malay's Fest. Uh, so it has lost a lot of luster. I mean, coming back from the era where we got to watch Florida, Tennessee, and we say it every single year, where those games were amongst the best in college football, the third Saturday in college football was a game that everyone across the country watched. It was stock full of NFL players, NFL greats, amazing moments. You, whoever won that game won the SEC East. Now it feels like whoever wins this game, Alan, is just, it doesn't even matter at all. And I think that's primarily where so much of that luster is gone. And Dan Mullen even mentioned that, that this was a game where once upon a time, the winner of it was going to win the SEC East. It was like a foregone conclusion. And that ship has so sailed. So for me, it's fun. I'm excited. I still love this weekend. It's very special. This rivalry means a lot to me, but a lot of its luster is gone. How about you? I think so. I mean, I, I was going to ask you, do you miss it being the third game? I'll go ahead and answer this. I, yes, because it was like we always played two cupcakes, and then we don't really know what we have until we show up at Tennessee. And a lot of times we won. And we've had some incredible finishes two of the last three years. The streak is broken. We lost it a couple of years ago. That was always fun to lord that over Tennessee. I think, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, the fact that Tennessee kind of sucks, but they might beat us. Is not a great feeling. I the Kentucky game took a lot of steam for me. Like I, that was tough to watch. It made me question everything that's going to happen this season. Not like the future is going to be terrible and Dan Mullen's not going to make it. But I mean, we got punched in the face by Kentucky, and I don't. We've almost lost games to Kentucky before, but this felt different to me. So I don't know. I'm not as hyped. I really wish we had that win against Kentucky. Even out, you know, just for purposes of like keeping us alive in the East and stuff. So I don't know. Uh, a little bit of luster, although I think by game time, Saturday night I'm going to be pretty hyped. Because I want us to win this game desperately because this is such a significant game on both teams' schedule. Is this the most important game? I'm going to start with our schedule. We already know that, that Jeremy Pruitt has said, as we alluded to on week one of this podcast, Tennessee will die on the hill. This game means everything. I'm selling out for this, and we talked about whether or not that was wise. I thought it was wise because this is the game Tennessee fans want the most. Interestingly enough, though, with the way our season has gone, losing to Kentucky, losing to Tennessee could be a forebear of really potentially bad things. Do you feel like this is, A, the most important game on our schedule, and B, the most important game on Tennessee's schedule? 
I still think it is for Tennessee for all those reasons. They're going to struggle to pick up wins as they progress through the meat of their schedule. I feel the same way about us right now. Like I said before, there's a lot more games on the schedule that look more difficult. Missouri, LSU, Vanderbilt. We need this win. We need it bad. Uh, If we're going to maintain any kind of forward momentum for this year, I'm nervous about it going up to Tennessee and getting a win. I'm not a big believer in Tennessee overall right now, but it doesn't mean we're not capable of having a horrible effort. We showed that two weeks ago. This is huge for us. I'm going to say that huge for, I think, our the optics on the year. And the optics aren't everything, but they're significant in college football when you're dealing with the amount of pressure and money and status that really drives major programs. Agreed? Yes, and I want to I want to tackle this question in two ways. One, there's the tactical nature of coaching. So who's better at getting their team prepared in their first year of coaching? That means something, but typically that means much less than who's better in year two and three at getting their team ready because that's really what signifies a great coach versus a good coach. This would signal at a certain level who the better tactical coaching staff was. Both of these coaches inherited flawed programs. Both of them have rosters that have holes in talent. They're actually almost mirror images of it in a lot of regards. They're just very similar. And so this would show who's faster on the draw, which may not mean that next year's a wash or that our our coaches are going in the wrong direction for either program. I think for Tennessee fans, though, it would signify hope. I think for Florida fans, it would be very frustrating if we lose this game. But I think most people our understanding of the fact that this roster won four games last year for a reason and that our recruiting has been trending downward at a certain level. But neither one of these fan bases wants to lose this game for what it means to fan bases, past and future. And if you look at our schedule, if you win this game, you can build narratives for us winning seven or eight games. If you lose this game, you get into the scary worst-case scenario things we talked about. And for me, it's our biggest test for that reason uh, because we've had a Kentucky game where we lost it. How does this team rebound against another SEC opponent? And how does Dan Mullen do against a guy who is going to be benchmarked against him forever because it's year one and year one of each program? And I think that's big time. I think that's big time when you look at evaluating coaches. All right, a little fun note before we get into – the real dissection of this game. Lil Payton, the legend of Lil Payton, can you give us an update? How's he doing right now? So we have we have 15,000 plus listeners now a week on the show, which is incredible. Thank you guys for listening. And when we first started, we had like 100 or 500. And so we told the, the Lil Payton story in depth in year one of the podcast. I'm going to give you just a snippet. Uh, friends and I went to the game. This is almost 10 years ago now. And Tennessee, we beat Tennessee at the end in a very thrilling, thrilling victory. And, and they had these... These number 30 amazingly cool football player water bottles. And the Tennessee fans were so mad they just left them littered in the stadium. So we grabbed him. We named him Little Peyton. He's a black guy. There's no way he could be Peyton Manning. But regardless, we named him that. And we went on to win like a gajillion games in a row, right? That's like the, the, the legend of Little Peyton until we finally lost two years ago. So every year I pull Little Peyton out. He's out here all week long. I make him my Facebook profile picture. We slap him up on the Gator Ball podcast page. And we have a lot of fun with him. So he's doing well. Right now he's chilling at my house. He's going to be in front of the TV here for the rest of the week, taking in the surroundings. And hopefully he brings us yet another win uh, because he's got one loss on his record. And, you know, 
whatever it is, nine or ten wins. So he, he's still there. He's still having a great time. He's a little disappointed, of course, as we are, that the game is not as important, that he is not as important as he once was. But hang in there, little Peyton. Uh, your day will come back. Now, there's lots of familiarity between Pruitt and Dan Mullen, Allen. As we look into this game, I want you guys to remember this. Although this is their first meeting against each other, Dan Mullen has gone up against Pruitt coached defenses. Pruitt co-coached defenses at different levels of personnel multiple times. Multiple times. So these guys are very familiar with each other. Alabama coaches in general all employ the same strategy to stopping Dan Mullen's offense. He will do the same thing Kirby Smart does, Nick Saban does. This is nothing new for them in this week of practice. So this makes this game a little bit more interesting than two year one coaches who have never gone against each other. These are very familiar guys. So with that, walk us through the coaching staff. We know a lot of you probably are not familiar with who the OC or the DC is for Tennessee. Give us some of these guys and give us what Florida's looking at before we get into the film. So Jeremy Pruitt, if you're first year on the job, if you're familiar with the debacle of the Tennessee coaching search, we talked about it at length. He's probably their like 10th choice, but he's there. He does have an interesting coaching tree and been at a lot of places, most recently Alabama. Tyson Helton, first year as OC, pro style. You'll recognize the last name, brother of Clay, worked at USC. Solid resume there. Kevin Scherer, first year, obviously, in D.C., runs a 3-4. Bama, UGA, both Rick and Smart kept him around. So he's obviously a guy, when they when people look at him, they're, they're pleased with his results. Chris Rumpf, you remember that name? former UF um, coach. It's his first year. They're, they're kind of co-DCs, but, you know, obviously Jeremy Pruitt's going to have his hands all over that as well. This is an interesting note. So over a five-year recruiting profile, Tennessee ranks 12th, UF ranks 13th. So if you're looking like at a talent disparity, you know, it used to be like UF had a much bigger edge in that area. Obviously, it's about... It's essentially equal. So even though most people would think UF is a more talented team, maybe not at this point. You know, it doesn't count transfers and other kinds of things and defections and injuries, but uh, still a, a decent amount of talent on the Tennessee sideline. James, walk us through what you picked up about the offense and defense as you watch them. So offensively and defensively, Tennessee is, is best considered as an Alabama 2.0. Pruitt has basically modeled this Tennessee team after them. Now, whether or not that's going to get you anywhere remains to be seen. Most of the Saban coaching tree has not been super successful. But then again, Alan, we have Kirby Smart to indicate as a guy that may be more successful. Who knows? We'll see. Uh, they rely heavily on the rushing attack, especially this year. They run the ball 65% of the time. That is their strength. Uh, their weakness is the passing game. Their quarterback, Jared Cartano, has been there for a couple of years now, still a young guy, still relatively inexperienced, has become very safe with the ball. And again, we talked at length about Alabama's floor strategy in the past. It's clearly in play with Tennessee. They are basically telling Garantano, do not turn the ball over. And this far this season, he has not done it. And they got drubbed by West Virginia. They've fumbled the ball here and there, but he has not thrown any picks. So he's been safe with the football, uh, which I think in a game like this one is going to be actually very important because both of these teams are flawed. They're not powerful enough to just blow out the other one without these mistakes. Tim Jordan is their best uh, running back. They have a committee. They have four guys to get quite a few carries, kind of like us. Very similar there. And their best receiver 
um, is I'm blanking on his last name now. Marcus. Uh, Marcus Callaway. There it is. Yeah. And so he is uh, solid. Actually. Yeah. You saw him flash against us last year. He's a good player. Yeah. Where's number one? Very solid. Definitely a top level SEC talent. So uh, you can see the similarities on offense already with regards to that. But they're going to run a lot of things that Alabama would run. They'll go under center. They'll run shotgun. They'll spread you out. They're multiple offense, but they're more or less a pro style, basic offense that relies on winning at the line of scrimmage. What sets up the big question that we're going to answer in the keys to victory, Hallen, the last time we had a line of scrimmage battle, we got abused by Kentucky. Tennessee is going to want to make this a line of scrimmage running battle. It's going to be similar, but different. They don't have the firepower at running back per se that Kentucky has. They don't have the firepower at quarterback running wise that Kentucky has. But you better believe on film they've seen what we put out there against Kentucky and they're feeling pretty good about their ability to run the ball. Defensively, they're solid against the rush and they're poor against the pass. They're extremely young. Extremely young. So a poor back end just like us. They do have an excellent safety in Nigel Warrior as a junior. Uh, and we, UF, is only completing 47% of our passes. So when you look at the matchups, you say, hmm, we should attack them in the passing game, yet we really struggle to pass the football. So this game, when you look at it on film, Alan, it looks like we mentioned a team in Florida that is okay, has some upside, and a team in Tennessee that really looks pretty poor. When you look at the stats, uh, which I kind of just gave you there, it looks like Tennessee has some interesting strengths versus weaknesses matchups maybe we don't have and I think that's precisely why this line is at four and a half it seems like it would be low if you watch the teams play but if you look at how they match up this could be a a very coin flip oriented game all right let's talk about some of the injuries Sean Davis questionable CJ McWilliams David Reese probable the big news there is Reese Jacob Copeland freshman not mentioned he might be out indefinitely uh, another note, we mentioned Malik Davis, but another note, Dre Massey moved to corner. We're so thin over there, and he wasn't really seeing the field at receiver. Uh, I think this is a smart move. We'll see. I don't know if he'll actually get on the field, but we definitely need bodies back there. And uh, you put a little note here, Quentin Dunbar. Yeah, so once my breakout player, Dre Massey, now is switching sides of the ball, this could be the best thing for a guy like Massey. He's explosive. He's very quick, probably quicker than he is fast. Quentin Dunbar most notably made this change, and he is an NFL nickel slash corner still to this day. Making good money. And and made very good money, and that is not easy to do. So I think for Dre Massey, this probably did not take a lot of convincing. Uh, At a certain point in time, this is what's good. Like we talk about having the proper amount of depth. It also informs the players, hey, you actually aren't good enough at this level, which is the best feedback they can get. So now that Massey knows, you know what? I'm not good enough to crack the UF step chart, which means I'm definitely not going to the NFL what if I try to do something different? I, I, I applaud him for making that change. I think that's smart. I think that's a smart thing for him. It could be best for his career. It could mean his college football career ends with him playing corner and he goes no further. But at this stage, I applaud him. We'll see what happens. Clearly, though, Alan, it indicates the severe issues we have at a place like the University of Florida, where once upon a time we were cornerback you, and today we are moving receivers from the slot over to play corner because we just have no depth. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully you won't see Dre Massey on the field, but if you do, maybe he'll surprise us. All right, let's get down to this week's game prediction. Before we do that, let's talk about the keys to victory. James, you go first. 
I think this game is the old football cliche. Tennessee wants to run the ball. We know that we have to stop them running the ball. All of that to say, the team that runs for more yardage in this game is going to win, except for the fact that both of these teams are so wild that there could be like a turnover X factor. So I'm going to go with this. Team that has the most rushing yards wins the game unless they have three or more turnovers, in which case it's void. I actually think it just comes down to that. It's, it's not just, like an NFL pregame show yeah. guy who's like, oh, got to run the ball. That's what it is, and I hate that because yeah. that's like my least favorite thing. But that's just the way these two teams are right now, and it's how Tennessee wants to play. And if we stop Tennessee from running the ball, we're going to be in great shape. We've had a tremendous problem, Allen, getting off the field on third down. Teams are converting at better than 50% against us on third down. That is not a recipe for success in the SEC. We have to put Tennessee in third and six, third and seven, third and eight, make them pass the ball, and then get off the field. And I think if that's the case, this Tennessee team really cannot score. And their defense is not is really not great yet either. So our offense, not great yet either. I don't know. I mean, I'm saying all these things to say this is one of those games that feels like it's going to be that simple. That football cliched. This is 1940s football. Run the ball more and you win. If you don't, you've got a serious uphill battle in front of you. Yes, it feels like it might just be that straightforward. Now, Garantano's been there a little while. He's not a pro style. He's a dual threat kind of guy. I've never been impressed with him. He doesn't seem like he can pull the trigger. He has taken bad chances. I think if we put them in a position... Uh, with lots of third and longs, if we can find the recipe to unleash Zuniga and Polite or Jefferson, we could do some damage in the turnover department. I'm hopeful that between CJ Henderson and Trey Dean, we can cover up their receivers. Now, again, our safeties could toast us in this game. I feel very unconfident in this because of the way we were unable to stop Kentucky running the ball. Now, that Kentucky game was still close, and I think Tennessee and Kentucky are probably similar profile teams. And so we can win this game. I could see a scenario where we blow them out. I don't see much of a scenario where they're blowing us out. So that would lead me to believe that we're that's why we're favored, I think. And it's not by much. I think this will be a close game. I, I hate to be as reductive as don't turn the ball over, get the turnovers, Felipe cannot throw picks that lead to points. I, I still think their offense is limited enough that they're not going to be able to move the length of the field, even if they're able to run the ball with some success. Now, if they're gashing us, that's different. They struggled against West Virginia's defenses, which is not a world-class defense. We should be able to limit them. And, to, and I think this might be the game where you see a little more exotic blitzes from Grantham to try to confuse and fluster Garantano and maybe force them into some errors. Uh, and if that's happening, if we're getting them into third and long, I think we can be successful. So that, again, third down, run the ball, don't turn it over. But watch our defensive tackles. Are they getting blown off the ball? Are they getting, uh, are they moving the line of scrimmage backwards? You don't, you're not necessarily asking them to dart in those gaps and disrupt, but are they holding the point of attack? That will tell you a lot. And can David Reese Fix some of our run defense. Are they in the right gaps? Can he get Voshan Joseph pointed in the right direction? That's another big thing for this game. Are you ready to make a prediction? 
I am ready to make a prediction. I think our game plan in this game is going to be a little bit more aggressive on defense. We've blitzed a lot on third down. We have not blitzed hardly at all on first and second down. I think a lot of that has to do with the thinness of what we have and then actually not having a middle linebacker. And we talked about this last year. It's suicidal to blitz if you can't cover the back end. It's doubly suicidal if you don't have a guy who can orchestrate your team uh, and move them around correctly. If Reese plays, I expect us to be more confusing on defense. Uh, we're already generating two and a half turnovers a game, which is good. So I think game plan wise, more aggression on defense. I, I fully expect that Mullen will expect them to cover us much the same way Kentucky did. Cover two base. They're going to bring a safety down. I hope they spend a lot of time this week hitting those seam post routes because they are going to be there for us. They are going to absolutely be there for us. So we need to steal some big plays there. I think opportunistic is the key word. I think both teams are going to come out conservative and try to let the other one make a mistake until the game settles in. So for me, watching this game on film, we feel like we're the better team. This is Dan Mullen's first road game, which will be something. He's a veteran at doing this. This is nothing new to him. For Jeremy Pruitt, this is his first real SEC rivalry game as a head coach. A lot more nerves, a lot more riding on the line for him. I have two thoughts on this and a fear, Alan. Two thoughts are we're better on film. We should win this game even though we're on the road. My fear is that like Jeremy Pruitt's team is like ready to die on a hill for this team potentially. And Dan Mullen is presser kind of like he did against Kentucky. It was sort of like, hey, Florida's going to lose sometime to Kentucky. And we did. This week, is Tennessee a big rival? I don't have a problem saying Tennessee. Just a word. It's just a thing. It almost feels like Mullen is sort of recognizing that this season is really not that important he doesn't want to put in his grand scheme. Whereas Pruitt is selling out for the tactical win. That worries me in a close game. Because I think the players will reflect that, right? If you're a long-term thinker, you don't let the short-term affect you. And if you're a short-term thinker, you sell out for it. Well, this is a game where that could matter if it's close. Our players are in the development stage. They're progressing. They're growing for next year. Tennessee's like, we're winning this game. So all that to say, I think this game will be close. I do think that Dan Mullen's coaching expertise, time in the system, will play itself out here. Anything could happen, I feel, as as completely unclear about this game as any other one that's been close that I've ever predicted on this podcast. I'm going to say that Florida wins this one 23-20. 23-20. Middling score, middling game, probably pretty frustrating to watch. Uh, but I really feel completely not confident with how this could go. I would just echo all of what you said. I usually have a pretty good feel for what score I want to say. You know, there's been games where I'm like, I don't know. This could go in a lot of different directions. I've been thinking all week. This is funny because we, we don't ever say this before we talk about, I was going to say 24, 20. So that means we both pick us not to cover almost the same exact game. I mean, this could be field goal late kind of a game. If it's so unpredictable, I don't know how this team's going to respond on the road. That requires a level of toughness that they haven't exhibited yet. And I don't think that they, it's not that they can't do it, but they haven't really shown it yet. So both of us pick a close Florida victory, not covering. I would not bet this game at all. I don't know what the over-under is, but stay away is my advice. Yeah, agreed. I'm just shaking my head. No, don't don't touch the Gators. Betting on them is terrible, as is Tennessee. All right, let's, let's get to the national games here. There are a bunch of good ones this weekend. Park yourself in front of the television 
And then we will close up. I suppose this is yet another megasode, Alan. Uh, and if you have feedback for us, write us back on these links too. We've sort of gotten feedback that the link doesn't matter, but maybe it does. So let us know. We'll shorten it, lengthen it, whatever. Uh, first game on the menu, the Fighting Lane Kiffins taking on UCF at UCF. UCF favored by 13 and a half. Uh, FAU didn't show me enough in that Oklahoma game to pick them against UCF. I'm going to go ahead and take UCF and the points, even though even giving up points, even though that pains me to say that. But you never know with old Lane Kiffin. I'm taking UCF as well. I think I think that it's it's clear at this point in time that Scott Frost built a, a actual juggernaut there with the competition they play. Uh, nothing is going to slow them down. The only question is whether or not FAU can score with UCF, which can keep these games in that 14-point spread. Northern Illinois versus Florida State. Florida State's favored by nine and a half. I'm sure bookmakers everywhere are cringing at trying to even create a betting line for this game. I mean, I'm going to take anyone giving points to FSU right now. So, yeah, give me Northern Illinois. I don't know that they're going to win or even cover this, but I'm sure not touching FSU. Yeah, you can't touch FSU. I could tell you a million reasons why FSU is going to win by more than 10, and I believe none of them. They should. I mean, talent-wise, this should be like a 30-point spread. Yeah, and I believe none of those reasons because it's a, it's a, it's an incredible dumpster fire, and right now you stay away from dumpster fires. Georgia... Minus 14 at Missouri. Allen, this is my lock of the week. Ooh. This is my bet of the week right here. Georgia Very. absolutely covers this spread and beats Missouri like a Very freaking Very interesting. Love this line. At Mizzou. Love it. Doesn't dissuade me at all. It's an 11 a.m. game, which scares me. That's, That's what the I was only say. X fact. It does. It doesn't matter. I think Georgia is an absolute juggernaut, and I'm, I'm bombarding You're going to ride Georgia until they... I'm riding them until they stop printing me money. 14 is an interesting number. If it was... You know, higher than that, I might take Missouri, but Georgia's just been blasting people. I mean, man, this one's interesting. I feel like either way, I could come up feeling stupid. You know that this is a new this is they could sleep in this game and this they could win by ten, and it's like, ooh, that was a little closer. But I'm gonna take Georgia. Nebraska at Michigan. Michigan favored by eighteen. If Adrian Martinez was playing in this game, I would definitely take Nebraska. But I, Michigan, I don't think that Michigan's a real deal. And 18 is high. But Nebraska's coming off a loss to Troy, so i, I got to take Michigan here. I'm going to take Nebraska here. Ooh. I don't think that Michigan is that good, and I think Nebraska is not good. But 18 points is a lot of points for it a is. Michigan team it is. to beat someone by. So I'll take Nebraska on the points. Texas A&M versus Alabama. Trivia question that I don't know the answer to. Has Jimbo Fisher ever been a 26-and-a-half-point underdog? I don't know. Probably not. That's huge. Okay, the way that A&M played Clemson, now we said Clemson might not be as good. Bama's a juggernaut. They've been absolutely mashing people. But that's too big a number. I'm going to have to go A&M. This is so hard for me. Yeah, I feel, you like, take I feel like Bama is such an incredible steamroller right now. And I think the world of Jimbo Fisher. I'm so intrigued with this game. A&M does not have the talent to compete with Bama. But I do think they have the coaching staff to make things hard for Tua. I think the first team that can make things at least confusing for him. And A&M does have athletes. They do. And they've seen film. 
No one has been able to really try and challenge him yet. Ole Miss is a horrible defense. And for that reason, I think this game could be closer than that point spread. I think it really could. I think two is fantastic. But again, Georgia had no film on him in the national championship game. Nobody that's played them this year really hasn't had any film on them that's been any good. Or, the, or is, they could do anything about. This is the first game where it could happen. And it's so dumb to ever bet against Bama. Not to the point where I just Jimbo Fisher getting 26 and a half points. That that is that's too hard. To well, think about this. If Bama won by 25 in a conference game, you'd be like, man, that was a that was a big win. And that and this number is still higher than that. So I, I can't I can't mess with that number. It's a little too high. Kansas State, West Virginia, my favorite team, favorite player. <laughs> <laughs> Country roads, take me home. Yeah. West Virginia favored by 16 and a half. Yeah, I think that's a lot to do with that Mississippi State game, actually. Um, I think West Virginia puts it on them you know, at home. So I'll take West Virginia even giving up 16 and a half. I like this line as well, and I like West Virginia. TCU minus three versus Texas. Ooh. Uh, I don't think Texas is ready for TCU yet. I'm going to take TCU here. That feels right to me as well. Uh, Texas is, I think, improving, and they're going to keep improving. They still have quarterback issues. I think TCU is a better team here. I like this line for TCU. I'm t- I never want to bet anything that Texas is involved in, so I wouldn't confidently say take it, lock it, but I like it. Mississippi State, my second lock of the week. Okay. Minus 10.5 against Kentucky. So I love this line in Lexington, for Mississippi you're, State. You have no... Who cares about Lexington? What is well, that? No, but just advantage? that Mississippi State has not gone on the road... They pantsed Kansas State on the road. Oh, you're right. They're ready. That was on it's the road. Joe Moore's going to lay the wood to Kentucky. Kentucky's fraudulent. They're going to smash them. Mississippi State's D-line, Allen, is excellent. They are not going to give up a gajillion rushing yards to their high school offense. I love this line. And I love Joe Moorhead. I'm totally wearing the Joe Moorhead colored glasses. It's funny. I already referenced the K-State, Mississippi State, and then edited it out of my brain as soon as I said it. This feels like a game that they maybe not show up for Mississippi State because they've got other games ahead on their schedule. I'm still going to take Mississippi State here, but I, you're feeling a lock. I would be on the other side of that where I would stay away from it. Okay, I like it. I can't wait to see what happens next week. Stanford versus Oregon, our last game of the weekend. Stanford favored by one against Mario Crystal Ball's team, which I can assure you, if you want some entertainment, go read the Oregon message boards and even their journalists. They are so happy that Taggart is gone, and a lot of them now are feeling like they called this, which is a little bit of hindsight bias. But either way, big game on the slate here for the West Coast. I like Cristobal as a coach. Stanford is looking like they've figured it out on offense a little bit. Mm, these games are, were so interesting in the Chip Kelly years. I don't know. Oregon's a tough place to play. I don't know that they're ready for Stanford yet either, so I'm going to take Stanford here. I'm going to take Oregon in this Ooh. one. I'm going to take Oregon. I think Stanford's offense is still benign. I think Oregon is is on the way up. And uh, when they have when they have their quarterback playing, they're, they're nice. And when he's not playing, they're not nice. But he's playing. He's so playing. I think as long as he stays healthy, I like Oregon in this game. And Does I'm it kind feel of like excited. kind of coin flippy? Or you feel like you would... No, no. I, n- never, never in the Pac-12 bet against Stanford. That's a bad idea. Okay. They play a different style. They're much bigger than the Oregon team always is. I don't, I don't like this game to bet on. But I think what I'm saying here is I think Oregon is ascending again, oh. which I think is good for college football. Yeah, I, I like don't Oregon think it's going to get him into like a top five range, but I think it's good when Oregon's good. It's fun to watch those games 
when they're playing out there in Austin Stadium. It's a good place to play. I'm looking forward to watching that game. Uh, and so, you know, should be a good slate this weekend. It's a good week four slate. I like it. Yeah, me too. Let's let's watch some football. Let's do it. All right. You guys are going to watch some football this weekend. Saturday night, let's hope the Gators battle their inner demons, play with some toughness and some grit, and pick up a big road win. Win or lose, we'll be right back here next Monday to tell you why it happened. We'll see you guys soon. An ad from Dad. <clears throat> All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Sua vida universitária pode ter Spotify Premium pela metade do preço. Com Premium, você vai dar pulos ilimitados e não se preocupar com nenhuma interrupção. Curta as suas músicas preferidas pagando apenas R$ 8,50 por mês. Esse precinho é só para universitário, hein? Música com áudio de qualidade para estudar ou curtir a noite toda com os amigos. E tem mais. Chegou a sua hora. Se você nunca testou o Spotify Premium, ainda tem três meses grátis para fazer isso agora. Seja Premium. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.